I wonder if you've questioned why do we use the NRSV Bible translation. It's one that all the Bible colleges use because it's generally revered as being the most accurate. But it's also inclusive. It's inclusive in the sense it's not just him, but it includes her. And that's how it should be. And so we start this new series on prophets Elijah and Isaiah. And quite often I always have the privilege of the opening overview, in a sense, of when we do a new series. When that happens, that generally means I can choose the songs, but I'm glad to say that Say beat me to it with the days of Elijah, because it had to be. We have that version in, in several different formats, and one that many of you have seen before is when the U.S. Marines sing it. If you've not gone online to YouTube and watched U.S. Marines sing Days of Elijah, you must. It is absolutely brilliant and awe-inspiring. And I love it when you see the men praising God and raising their hands. And equally, I love it when our young children on the front row and the back rows pray. Maybe if I encourage more of the mic to go around, we will hear their voices and hear their prayers. So exciting. Elijah and Isaiah. Now, can you imagine living your normal life, giving God thanks and praise, following his ways and seeking to serve him as you do? And then suddenly you hear his audible voice speak to you. If it was me, I would question if I was going crazy. Yes, I know of times when my spirit has heard the silent voice of the Holy Spirit guiding and leading me. But to audibly hear God speaking directly to me, well, that is another level. How would you feel? What would you do? Would you dismiss it or ignore it? But we all know with God, we cannot ignore him or dismiss him. You can't argue or barter with God. Have you tried it? Trust me, I have. And so we turn to the Old Testament and to two prophets who responded to God's call. Now there were two extraordinary periods in the Old Testament. They were marked by multiple miracles. The time of Moses and the Exodus and the years the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. We find those stories as we heard in 1 Kings. Now 1 and 2 Kings are described as a theological reflection on the story of Israel's public life. They are an answer to the haunting question. How did the once united nation, recipient of the greatest gifts of freedom and land, end up in captivity and in exile. Listening to the story and reflections on it long ago were the exiles themselves who wept by the waters of Babylon, Psalm 137. And they longed for Jerusalem and the temple which was destroyed. Speaking to them, then were their godly leaders also in captivity but not wholly bereft. They had carried with them their deep knowledge of Israel's covenants, especially the covenants with Moses forged on Mount Sinai, 
and the covenant with David. These believers were in exile. They were certain of the story of Israel, but it had everything to do with their covenant. To read 1 and 2 Kings today is to be invited into an unsettling reflection on Israel's public life and equally upon our own public life. The writers of Kings insist that public life must be aligned with the law of God. And anything other than that is compromise. In fact, all areas of public life, political, religious, economic, judicial, and military, and those caught up in this public life, just as we are, are open to God's review and resolve. You could say nothing gets past God, and especially anything that goes against his teaching. And if we go against God, we go against God, we do so at our peril. I have often wondered why some Christians lock themselves away from the world, seeking a solitary life in prayer and fasting. How can they be in the world and not part of it? What use can it be locked away? I have to be honest and say I've always found those Christians selfish. And then as preparing this talk, did I realize that my fighting my call into ministry, which first happened when I was 21, took 25 years before I eventually gave in. And then it was another two before I commenced the ministry. Did you know that Moses spent 40 years tending his sheep before leading the Israelites from Egypt? And then he spent time alone with God throughout that trek in the desert. And did you know that Elijah also spent important time in solitude before and during his role as messenger of God? The story opens up with a prophecy to Israel's king, Ahab, a worshipper of Baal. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years by my word. That was the prophecy in 1 Kings. He then gets a personal instruction from God. Go and hide yourself by the Wadi Cherith. Now looking at this cynically, it's like me going to tell the bully to stop bullying and then run for it. But God kept his word and withhold both dew and rain and cared for Elijah by bringing him to a stream and providing him with ravens to feed him with bread and meat morning and evening. When the wadi dried up, God told Elijah to seek out a certain widow who would feed him. God kept filling up her jar of meal and her jug of oil so that she, her son, and Elijah could eat. When the son died of illness, she regretted her kindness to Elijah and blamed him for her son's death. Through prayer, Elijah brought him back to life. 
After many days, God called Elijah to go to the king. Elijah announced a contest between God and the false god of Ahab, Baal. After the prophet, sorry, after the prophets of Baal failed to bring fire on the altar sacrifice, Elijah prayed, and God rained down fire, consuming the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and even the water surrounding the altar. God's power had been displayed, and the drought ended. But now, here enters a scorned wife. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, seeks revenge and seeks Elijah's life. So Elijah goes into the wilderness for shelter and refuge. He was afraid. Or wouldn't you be? But God met him there with food and water, and an angel who encouraged him, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. Elijah travelled 40 days until he came to a cave where God met him again. Here Elijah confessed to being afraid and alone. And God showed him his presence after a great wind, earthquake and fire. God came in silence and instructed Elijah to anoint two new kings. And Elisha as his own successor. Elisha became his disciple and was present when Elijah was taken by divine horse and chariot into heaven. Elisha did not die in an earthly sense as we will. He was taken alive up to heaven. Elijah lived a fantastic life, seeing God's might firsthand as few others have. Yet even Elijah needed times of solitude where God could meet him alone, giving refreshment and guidance. The 15th century theologian Thomas Akempis lived out such a commitment to solitude, and he encouraged followers of Christ to imitate Jesus by doing the same. In his classic book, The Imitation of Christ, he writes, the person who wants to arrive at interiority and spirituality has to leave the crown behind and spend some time with Jesus. Nobody's comfortable in public unless he or she has spent a good time in the quiet of their home. God instructs us as he did Elijah. Go and hide yourself by the stream. He is there to give us food and drink and rest. He will guide us in the ways that we should go. Can you recall a time in your life when you saw God's work, God's power at work in your life? Since that time, have you ever doubted God's care for you? What place have you got where you go to to be quiet, alone with God? Just to be you and him. If not, what keeps you from making solitude a more regular part 
of your Christian life? Does your busyness fulfill you? How can you invite God to remove your loneliness and give you instead fullness through solitude? Can I encourage you to spend time with God alone? Find a space. Talk to him. But also listen to him. Can you imagine the pressure of being God's prophet? Speaking the message that God has not only put in your heart, but being so burdened that you must share it. Even knowing that at times you won't be listened to or heard. Isaiah has been known as a charismatic visionary. The holiness of God, judgment, hope, a people transformed by the Spirit of God. These are not only the core messages of Isaiah's message to Israel. They are the truths God first impressed on Isaiah himself. In his grand vision of God, Isaiah saw God filling the temple and heard Sarah speaking of God's great holiness. Filled with unworthiness as we all should cry out, Woe is me! Only to find a seraph touching his lips with a hot coal from the altar of God, purifying him from sin. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God asked. Here am I. Send me, said Isaiah. He went on to proclaim God's judgment on Israel for its continual unfaithfulness and then to promise hope for release from the coming captivity and for the future of God's people. Through his vision of God's holiness, his confession of his own sin and his, accepting of accepting, his acceptance of God's cleansing and call. Isaiah received the Spirit to guide him in many of the most moving and hope-filled words of the Bible. Now the church sees many of Isaiah's prophecies fulfilled in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, through whom God did new things, and who came to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to release the prisoners. Today we might call Isaiah a mystic, or a charismatic, or even a Pentecostal. His early vision of God served as vital preparation for his latter work. And although he lived many centuries before Pentecost, Isaiah was clearly directed by God's Spirit to carry out his work. Through Isaiah, God finally instructed an answer to his people's inability to serve him. The Savior would come and forever change their relationship with God. Isaiah had a pivotal assignment, and he allowed God to prepare and equip him in powerful ways. 
God still uses similar means to guide his people. He may call us to a ministry beyond our reach and then, through visions and radical movements of the Spirit, guide us in carrying out that work. Such was the way for William Seymour, born in South America just after the Civil War. Seymour educated himself and later found a call to a preaching ministry in the North within a denomination committed to holiness and racial inclusiveness. Later he accepted a call to pastor a church in California, and it was here that he experienced a spiritual breakthrough that would help him usher in the Azusa Street Revival, the foundational event for the Pentecostal movement. At a prayer meeting that lasted three days, can you believe that? Three days? People were filled with the Holy Spirit and overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with joy. Many began speaking in tongues, and some were healed. On the third night, Seymour himself had a vision of God's white, hot brilliance and divine love. God spoke healing and encouragement to him. Soon this small group of common working people were joined by crowds of both black and white Christians from every social class and nearly every nationality meeting there three times a day. It became the revolutionary new type of Christian community born through the power of the Holy Spirit. People even began leaving as missionaries to all parts of the world and a newspaper that Seymour started grew to worldwide distribution. Born to slaves, Seymour understood Pentecost as a new jubilee requiring the release of the broken and the bruised from oppression. He saw the tongues of fire that occasion to be a sign of an Isaiah-like reconciliation among races and nations and cultures. He also believed that all should be free to participate in church leadership in response to God's call. Irrespective of education, color, or gender, women were among the most powerful leaders in the Azusa mission. Most important, Seymour stressed divine love, the standard for all that God was doing. Love was more important than speaking in tongues, for it was the source of all the Spirit's work. Without love, anything might be attributed to the Spirit, become meaningless. So have you ever experienced anything like Isaiah's vision of God? What has been your understanding of the Holy Spirit, his work in the life of believers? How open are you to letting the Holy Spirit move in a powerful and new way in your life? As you consider God's work for you in the world, how can you keep love central in all that you do and say? Isaiah prophesied in his time, 
but it would be years before God's people would take hold of all God intended through his words. Even today, Christians lose sight of their call to lose bonds of injustice. Let the oppressed go free. Share bread with the hungry and care for the homeless. In essence, they fail to live in love. In the light of the work still to be done, may we follow the leading of Isaiah and commit ourselves to be changed by the holiness of God. May we be moved by God's judgment and encouraged by his promise of hope. And may we open ourselves up to the Spirit's ministry of love and power in our lives. God has called each and every one of us to do a special work of love in this world. And he awaits our reply. Then surely, as God promised Isaiah, God's light shall break forth like the dawn, and his healing shall spring up quickly. Isaiah 58. For who can you love this week? Who can you reach out to to share God's love? Oh, I can't speak. I, I, I stutter. I stumble. I, I don't know what to say. That's great. God can use you. Just ask him. Ask him to be your words. May your mouthpiece be cleansed by God's holiness as you speak forth his words. It's love. Amen.